Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Lots to get to on the program today. Coming up, we're going to talk about those arrests made by Vancouver police, what they are calling chronic offenders when it comes to property crime. Also coming up on the program, Tamara Vrooman joins me. She is currently the CEO and president of Van City, but is making a big move and joining YVR. So we're going to talk about that and what it's like to make a move like that, particularly during a pandemic. That and much, much more. But first, let's start with that story you've been hearing on the news. Vancouver police saying that they have arrested two chronic offenders, recommending more than 70 separate charges, all related to commercial break-ins, mainly in commercial properties in Vancouver. So these offenses drew back to November, with the majority of them happening since the pandemic started on March 12th. We are still asking businesses to move property out of view of criminals use shutters to reduce visibility, upgrade their locks, and increase lighting levels to ensure businesses are well lit. Together, we can stop businesses from being targeted during these unprecedented times. We want to thank the BIAs around the city, as well as retail businesses and other uh, commercial areas, which are doing their part to work with us as we work with them to target commercial break-and-enters and go after these criminals who are targeting them uh, during the pandemic. Again, that was Sergeant Aaron Rode with Vancouver Police. Let's bring in Theodora Lamb, Executive Director of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association. Theodora, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What have you been hearing or seeing as far as members of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association and break-ins and increased crime? Mm, Well, at the height of um, the closure period about four weeks ago, we were averaging about a 68 uh, percent um, closure rate amongst our business members. And that's actually quite low when you compare it to other BIA districts who were averaging around 90%. That means businesses closed, shuttered, boarded up. You've seen incredible murals um, results um, from a lot of those closures. But you have to remember those boards are still there to prevent crime. And so in a district like Strathcona, where we're very diverse, we have factories, we have retail, we have restaurants, we were able to see more of our business members pivot. Um, but that still means um, businesses that had to shut down, they were exposed, they were vulnerable. We run a 24-hour patrol um, team that works very closely with the VPD. Uh, but it's a lot of it's a lot of area to cover uh, when you consider uh, the VPD are covering 22 BIA districts in total. And did you even anecdotally hear from businesses, the ones that were closed, was crime more of an issue? We have been hearing and receiving calls. We get calls uh, every day about different kinds of activity. One of the most worrisome calls we can get is uh, when arson is involved. And so we'll see debris set on fire. We'll see porta potties that have been placed temporarily set on fire. These are close to not only people and the people who are using these items, but close to the commercial properties themselves. And so uh, there's there's lots to think about when you're thinking about uh, crime prevention in a district. It's it's yes, it's calling the VPD. It's making sure you're employing uh, crime prevention through environmental design, but it's also your sanitation. What what's getting picked up? What's getting cleaned up? How how you present as a business and how the community looks um, uh, at large to those working their way through it. Uh, Sergeant Rode was also asked this morning about Oppenheimer and the movement of the tents in Oppenheimer uh, people into housing. I know some of them have gone to Crab Park. I know it, he said that Oppenheimer is looking great, that the, the cleanup 
setup of that park is going ahead as planned. Have you noticed a difference since since the, the, the camp in that park was moved out? Yeah, some interesting outcomes from the decampment of the park. I mean, first of all, if you go by that park, it's completely empty. I have not seen that I don't think ever. It's completely fenced off. We know that they've handed the keys to the parks board. And I think the businesses who operate on around the park, they're very curious, maybe a little nervous about what's going to happen next. What happens when it's um, opened up, hopefully for the community's use. You know, businesses there haven't been able to walk through the park in years to sit down, to take a lunch break. We have a lot of employees, a lot of factories and food distribution hubs that operate around the park. People want to be able to use it again. So there's some nervous around what happens next, but we are cautiously optimistic. We're pleased with how the process has gone. Um, I think uh, one of the outcomes, though, that isn't so spectacular is the fact that, you know, not everyone wants to go. They want to leave. So we see um, spread out from the park in front of businesses and doorways and other parks, new ca- uh, camps setting up, and that causes new kinds of problems for the businesses operating in the community. And that was one of the concerns even before when there has been talk, when there was talk earlier of getting an injunction or even moving the tents out earlier was that there would be that shift. Not everybody's going into the housing that was offered. There would be people that would stay in the community. That's right. And that's why housing strategy is so critical. I mean, this first big move has happened. And now we need to see more and hear more about how we're going to continue to address uh, homelessness and and these issues that pop up. I mean, a lot of these folks are just, they're looking to create a home. They're not part of the crime in the community. Sometimes we see the crime come from outside the community, but uh, it's all part of a larger picture, which is really about, you know, a safe community where people can work, they can run their business, they can deliver food, they can sit in the park and enjoy the sun. Do you think that makes it more of a challenge as we start to see, even in some other parts of downtown Vancouver today, I noticed businesses were taking the plywood down, they were cleaning the windows, they were getting ready for some kind of reopening. Does that make it more of a challenge for the Strathcona region or that area to do that as well as dealing with some of the other issues in that community? Strathcona has always been in this really unique and challenging position. Our proximity to the downtown east side, because of our diverse commercial makeup, uh, we've always had to think about um, recovery and economic stimulation and crime um, and homelessness issues. It's, it's, it's this very long list. And so, you know, the businesses, I keep saying this, it's not like they woke up yesterday and realized, oh, my goodness, where are we based? What's happening? They know the challenges that face the community. They are part of it. They're up for it. Um, They're always willing to show up as part of the solution. But uh, I do think uh, that the voice of the community uh, needs to continue to see support and change in a positive way. And so we'll keep looking for those cues from government. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. Theodora, thank you so much. Always good to talk with you. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. All right, you might have heard this in the news. Tamara Vrooman is stepping down as at the helm of Van City and is going to join the YVR Airport Authority as president and CEO. So joining us on the line now to talk a little bit more about this is Tamara Vrooman. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, so if I'm getting this correctly, you took over Van City. You were, became the leader of Van City just before the start of a big financial crisis that gripped the globe. Now you're going to the airport in the middle of a pandemic. It's like it, your life just isn't stressful enough. You need to take on these challenges. <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess that's one way to uh, to look at it. It's certainly true. I, I took over the helm at Ban City just as the financial crisis was getting started, and uh, and clearly uh, there's challenging times uh, for many sectors, but particularly uh, aviation uh, with the current COVID crisis. But you know. Uh, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, and sometimes we have to take a couple of steps back and uh, re-examine how we do things in order to take uh, the next leap forward. And that's certainly what I found at Van City uh, through the financial crisis, and I'm I'm looking forward to bringing that same experience to YVR. Well, congratulations on uh, this new opportunity. It sounds pretty amazing. Uh, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment looking back at your time at Van City? Well, I think what we had at Van City was, you know, a really strong and good uh, local financial institution um, that was committed to members, but didn't always translate everything uh, into uh, its business and its business model. And so we were able to uh, really bring a people-centered uh, agenda to to Van City and really put people at the heart of everything we do. And that's our members, and it's the community in which they live and work, and it's our employees. And by really building a business model uh, for a financial institution around people, we found that that also uh, generated a great uh, commercial success as well. And as a cooperative, that success benefited all of our members and employees. So I think it's really been a model uh, for uh, what you can create as a business when you put people at the heart of what you do and build the business around it versus the other way uh, other way around. And so I'm very proud of the fact that we uh, have doubled the size of our credit union. We're known both locally, nationally, and internationally as a role model for many financial institutions. And we've been able, particularly during the COVID crisis, to be able to put those values into action by helping our members and those in the community when they need it most. Uh, anything looking back that you would do differently if you were given the chance? Well, uh, as many uh, leaders, always when you look back, you'd like to have done things faster. So certainly, uh, certainly if I could have uh, done things quicker, I certainly uh, would have liked to have done that. But really, I have no, no regrets. I'm very proud of the work that the team at Van City has done through the board of directors, the leadership team, to our, our staff uh, who are working on the ground to serve members every day. It's really a team effort, and, uh, and I know that Van City is in good hands going forward. Uh, you are going into the airport then, again, in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, this The multi-billion dollar expansion has been uh, paused because of the pandemic. We're seeing an airport, uh, what is it, that usually sees uh, more than 26 million passengers uh, down 40 to 70 percent. What do you think the first priority is going to be for you when you take over this new role? Yeah, certainly the first priority is going to be to to listen, to really uh, understand uh, not only the perspectives and the needs of what we need to do differently uh, to face the challenges that COVID presents from staff, but also from the many, many stakeholders and businesses that rely on YVR uh, for their livelihoods and their ability to conduct their business. And then also stakeholders in the community and beyond. Uh, YVR is a beloved institution. Not very many cities say they're in love with their airport, but we all love YVR because it really represents the best of who we are in terms of its sense of place, its welcoming of uh, diverse cultures, its recognition of our Indigenous heritage, and the fact that it punches above its weight and efficiently brings uh, business and grows the economy all at the same time. So understanding what, how we continue to do that 
while addressing the very significant challenges that COVID brings. Uh, I'm confident that YVR will emerge uh, as a leader post-COVID and help uh, in the recovery of our region in the way it has many, many times in the past. It's got to be difficult, though, going into, it's not often you're going into a new job at the the head of such a big operation and one that's just laid off a quarter of its workforce and with a very uncertain future. Well, certainly these are uncertain times in all parts of of the economy. But where I think we are now is uh, we're really starting to understand that we need to focus in a measured way on the future and that we're not going backwards. We're only going forward. And so the opportunity to think about how we uh, create a safe and healthy airport is going to be a top priority to restore uh, people's confidence uh, and working with our airline passengers so we can get people uh, moving who need to get moving again in order uh, to to earn a livelihood and to start to grow the economy. Uh, you've, you've sat on the board as well, so it's not as though you're new to the organization. How does that help you or how do you think that will help you transition into this new role? Well, certainly sitting on the board uh, for the last nine years has given me a bird's eye view of all of the things that have uh, contributed to the strength of YVR, uh, from its leadership team to the way it thinks about the community, to its partnership with the Musqueam, to its strategic alliances with a number of airlines, and to the way it represents uh, our community and our economy uh, on the world stage. So all of those are strengths that uh, I come into this role you know, really understanding quite well, and we'll be able to hit the ground running and face some of the challenges that are no doubt ahead. Uh, Craig Richmond, the the president and CEO who's stepping down, uh, he has quite the reputation on social media. He, he's a pretty funny guy. I think if I'm remembering correctly, there, there have been lots of stories of him walking through the airport and picking up garbage when he sees it, if somebody has left litter on the ground. How do you see yourself filling those shoes? Yeah, so certainly, certainly, uh, Craig and I have different size feet, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, but I know Craig very well, and uh, he's been an excellent leader for YVR. I'll be a different leader for YVR, uh, but certainly uh, hope to continue the uh, tradition of excellence and innovation that's made YVR so successful. How do you see the the airline industry move, moving forward with people? I think uh, we, we've done many polls or seen poll results on this. Clearly, there are people who are excited and eager to get back to travel and air travel. How do you see that happening over the next, say, six months to the year? As with so many things uh, in our economy, as we start to think about uh, getting back, uh, getting back to some kind of new normal, I really think the the uh, the situation demands some patience and some confidence. So we really want to be sure that we're doing the right thing in a measured way, that we can ensure the safety and the health and well-being of, of our passengers, and that we can welcome our, uh, our uh, stakeholders onto the airport in a safe and secure and healthy way. So we'll be looking to make sure that we can do that. We'll be following the guidance of health professionals, first and foremost, and we'll be taking solid, confident steps forward as we ease into uh, the next phase post-pandemic. And uh, one final question. Uh, when I first saw the news today, uh, the first thing I thought of was a weekend, I'm sure you remember as well, when the systems were down at Van City and yeah. it was all weekend long. You made yourself available at five o'clock on a Sunday to the media, which I think every media person there will also remember because that doesn't happen very often. Will you be like that as far as being accessible and putting yourself out there to make sure people have that real-time information at the airport? 
Absolutely. That's uh, part of uh, how I've led Van City and definitely how I will lead a YVR. I start on July 1st, which is a stat holiday for many, but of course, um, YVR is a 24-7, 365 operation. So I'll be at work that day and I'll be available to staff and our stakeholders uh, and the media at any time that we need to, to make sure that we're providing transparent, up-to-date information that people can have confidence in and rely upon. And do you know who's taking your job at Van City? That is not known yet. The board will uh, start a national search. Uh, but, of course, in this situation, the timing of those searches uh, is uh, is a bit challenged. And with uh, less than two months before I depart, I expect that the board will appoint an interim uh, CEO uh, from within the organization, probably before our annual general meeting on the 15th of June. And there's a very, very strong leadership team here at Van City. So I'm, I'm sure they're going to have a, a tough job making, uh, making the choice. There's so much to choose from. All right. Well, congratulations again, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Joe. Thanks for being with us. In the final hour of the program, we're going to take a look at a new test. Canada has authorized the use of blood tests, and those will be used to detect COVID-19 antibodies. And this was talked about yesterday during the 3 o'clock update with Dr. Bonnie Henry, as well as Adrian Dix, as they do their update every single day. And she talked about the fact that the BC Centre for Disease Control now has the survey that they're asking all British Columbians to do or as many British Columbians as possible. They want people to do this survey to get a bit more information. And at the end of the survey, you can join in or at least say that you are available, that you would be willing to take the test. And in doing so, they hope to get enough of these tests to get a better idea of just who has the antibodies and what exactly that means for our population. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this, how the test works and what information it can actually give us. And joining us to talk about that is Jason Tetro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He's been with us several times before. Jason, thanks so much for being with us again. Uh, great to be joining you. What exactly? So what does this test do as far as we're talking about the first blood test that takes a look at, at uh, for COVID-19 antibodies? Well, what happens is, uh, obviously, when you get infected, you start to develop antibodies. And what this test is doing is essentially taking uh, the blood from you, putting it into a plate, it literally looks like a square, um, and then what happens is they perform what is known as a sandwich assay. And that sounds, ex- I mean, it is exactly as it sounds. So on the bottom in the plate, you've got something that's going to detect your antibodies, and then your antibodies go in there, and then on top of that, they're going to put something else that's going to attach to those antibodies, and then it's going to light up like a Christmas tree. That's basically what the test is. So what they're hoping to do is to identify people who have a very strong response to the SARS proteins or SARS-CoV-2 proteins so that we understand that they have some kind of immunity to the virus and won't be infected again. So, and, and there's no confusing it. If, you, if they're testing for the antibodies specifically to COVID-19, would that show that, yes, these are those specific ones? Yes. And the way that they've done that is um, we, we like to call it proficiency testing, but what it really means is you've tested against all the other types of coronaviruses that are out there. And I think in this particular case, they tested against five or six different ones. And so when you see this light up, 
then what you know is that those antibodies are against the SARS-CoV-2 and not to something like an OC43, 229E, or any of the others that are out there with really you know, interesting, but hard to pronounce names. <laughs> so if you had, say, uh, a SARS in the past, or if you've had a, a coronavirus in the past, is there any way that it, that could be confused and they would think that you'd had or been exposed to COVID-19, but you hadn't been? I think the sort of um, false rate is somewhere around the 09 to 1%. So there is obviously going to be some potential for, uh, you know, a test that comes up positive that may not necessarily reflect the antibodies against this particular virus. It's going to be very rare. And I think in that context, what it's going to do is it's going to give us a really good sense of the population, which is what we're looking for. But yeah, if, I mean, if there had been sort of a, you know, an OC43 going around in December before this thing came around, it's not going to get picked up. And does it tell us, though, so it tells us that we have the antibodies or we don't, but is it able to tell us if that means we have immunity? Well, that's a totally different thing. (laughs) See, these antibodies are what we call neutralizing antibodies. So in theory, if you're producing them, then when the virus gets inside of you, the antibodies will sort of be around and stop the virus from going any further inside of you. That's the theory. But if for some reason the virus can take hold and start an infection, then you're going to need more than just the antibodies to develop a proper immune response to clear the virus. Okay? So in that context, we sort of have to say that, well, if you're immunocompromised or you have suppressed immunity or you're taking drugs that potentially stop your immune system, like those who are taking them for rheumatoid arthritis, then maybe it may not be as effective, your immunity, even though you have those antibodies. But again, what we have to do is we have to get a sense of how many people out there have been exposed, have developed an immune response, and one that is strong enough to be able to neutralize the virus. And we've been hearing some cases, uh, I think there was a case in the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority uh, where a very young person, he got, uh, he was infected with the disease, but mm-hmm. his body went crazy in fighting it, in, in creating the antibodies and going after his, the, the system. And he ended up being in a coma. Thankfully, he, he recovered. Uh, mm-hmm. But is that something too, like, how do we know, or are we going to find out then the difference, the, the load levels on how many antibodies some people might have and how others might have less? Yeah, what's happening in this case, um, and we're seeing this as well in children in New York, the the Kawasaki disease, that's actually an autoimmunity as well. Um, And so what could potentially happen is if you develop antibodies against uh, this particular virus, there may be the potential for some mimicry. In other words, you create antibodies that recognize something other than the virus itself. And should that end up happening, then you may end up creating antibodies against yourself. And if that happens to be part of your vasculature or you know, your blood system, then that's where you, the Kawasaki comes in. If it starts creating antibodies against other things, it could develop almost like a lupus uh, type of symptom. And if it happens to be for your lungs, it develops what we call immunopathologies. Um, so there are risks Um, just simply by being exposed to this virus, which is one of the reasons why the whole idea of a COVID party is kind of stupid. You mentioned the the Kawasaki-like disease. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's probably uh, 
perked the ears of a lot of parents because up until this point we were really talking about the way that it looked like a lot of children mm-hmm. or children for the most part weren't getting this virus but now we're seeing this kind of offshoot of it so what's happening there well first off in, in terms of the prevalence just remember something uh, you know how we talk about measles and everyone's like oh well measles isn't a big thing until you start getting lots and lots and lots of people infected and then all of a sudden um, children start to die at a rate of about one to three per thousand well, we're seeing something very similar. It's just that there's so many people now who have been infected, and it's so widespread in those communities that some of the children who develop these autoantibodies um, essentially are now coming down with the infection and developing these you know, unfortunate, very, very difficult to control circumstances. It is very rare, and it's not something that is going to be you know, a, a predominating factor in deciding what's going to happen down the road. That being said, we want to find out you know, what it is about these children that is making them create these autoantibodies. So maybe we have even one more group of, of people that we want to protect, along with the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions and compromised immunities. And are we seeing this happen that people have, and I would imagine if, if we are, it's, it's in the cases of children, that they're, they're carrying the COVID-19 or they have it but aren't sick, so you wouldn't even know? That is something we still haven't quite figured out. We do know that asymptomatic cases, people who show no signs of, of, of infection, um, do exist. And it does seem like, essentially, they don't develop symptoms over time. So they're not pre-symptomatic, they're asymptomatic. Now, that happens with pretty much any kind of virus that you have out there. The question is, are children carriers if they're not uh, essentially showing symptoms? We don't know that yet. Um, but I have a feeling that we'll eventually learn what the viral loads inside of them are going to be, and then we'll have a better idea. Um, for now, we know that you know, animals like our pets, dogs, and cats can be uh, asymptomatic carriers, but the levels are so low that they're not really going to give them to, uh, to people. Is that the same thing with children? That's something we're going to have to find out, and I'm hoping that some of the studies that are undergoing right now are going to give us those answers. We are continuing uh, with my guest, Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. We've been talking about Canada authorizing a new test. It's a blood test to find antibodies of COVID-19. But if you have a question about that or anything else COVID-19 related, please, by all means, give us a call on the open line. And Jason has agreed to stay with us for the next few moments to uh, answer those questions. Uh, Let's go right to the phone lines. And Brent is on the line. Hi, Brent. Hello. Hi, what's your question? Back during the SARS uh, crisis, there were authorities on the radio saying those who consume probiotics are less likely to suffer infections. Does your guests agree or disagree with that? Uh, Disagree. This is a respiratory illness, and it goes into the, uh, the nose and the throat first, and then it goes into your lungs if you develop a more serious condition. Um, probiotics are fantastic for your uh, gut. It's really good to help you, um, you know, maintain uh, stability in your gut, but unfortunately it doesn't do anything to help your respiratory uh, or your uh, nasopharyngeal, as we like to call it, region. So probiotics, in this particular case, probably not very effective at all. All right, uh, let's go to Bob on the line. Bob, do you have a question for Jason? 
Uh, this study that they announced yesterday is, is, is less about uh, uh, antibody effectiveness, but more about uh, doing a surveillance on how successful this virus was, for lack of a better phrase. And I noticed yesterday that they kept pushing the website. If you guys could uh, put the number out as well, because uh, when I do the survey, I'm going to do it over the phone using the one eight three three seven zero seven nineteen hundred number. Okay, Bob, we can do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's go to Sue on the line. Sue, do you have a question? Yes. Um, I just wonder if it possible they could develop some kind of a uh, mask that was like 99% effective and then you know we'd be safe uh, a mask? everybody could get it I mean you know you could buy it yourself at, I don't know a, ma- a mask you're saying like a super duper yeah mask. yeah a really good one you know that you know just practically you know 99% effective and that everybody everybody in this dog could buy one and use it and that's it uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is possible. Uh, all you have to do is create layers. That's the big issue when it comes to masks, is how many layers do you have? If you've got 8 to 12 layers that are in there, it doesn't matter if it's homemade or if it's an N95 or it's, you know, one of these N99s. It's going to be preventing everything from coming in. HEPA filters are the same way in your ventilation systems. It's just basically the thickness of that filtration unit that is giving you that effectiveness. So, um, I mean, it may look crazy to have, you know, an entire pillow on your face, but you will know that that will be 99.99% effective. Uh, but I mean, I, and I get what uh, there's what Sue's saying, and what you're saying, but do, do we really, I mean, it's kind of like we could also all, you know, travel around in giant bubbles and keep ourselves safe that way. Well, I mean, the hamster bubbles really, you know, it, it, it's definitely something that could potentially work. The thing is, is that it makes it very difficult for us to move around. <laughs> it does indeed. Uh, Benita, do you have a question for Jason. I do, and thank you for taking my call. I'll try and be as quick as possible. Um, I have two questions. The first one is, um, when you're walking around, say, outside a nursing home and they've got their big ventilator systems working, is the air blowing out from the nursing home into the out-of-doors where you're walking? Is that dangerous? What a great question that is. Um, I would say probably not because you don't have people who are um, uh, essentially infected breathing aerosols into the ventilation chambers. If it was coming from the ICU of a COVID uh, ward, yeah, probably there would be definitely uh, virus particles in there. Okay, thank you. My next question, I'll be quick. I have a few nurse, 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 nurse friends who doesn't, and the subject came up last night of, um, I noticed that some of the nurses are wearing hats and some of them aren't. So I asked my nurse friend, I said, Do you, I see that some are wearing the hats, some are not. Is COVID able to live on your hair? And she said that she heard that it could. What, what do you take out of that? Well, it'll survive on surfaces, and of course, hair will happen to be a surface. So if anyone happens to cough, sneeze, or whatever, respiratory droplets get into the hair, then, yeah, you're definitely going to have that as a potential issue. Now, is that going to be a cause for concern? Probably not. But if you happen to be, you know, going from patient to patient to patient, and you are seeing patients who are very, very weak in their immune system, um, it is possibly a precaution that you might like to make. Just by the way, uh, as a side, when I would work in the high-level labs when we were dealing with, you know, viruses that potentially could kill us, we would tend to wear toques. Um, not only did it keep us at a normal temperature, but it also helped us to prevent us from touching our hair. All right. Uh, Good questions, Benita. Thank you uh, for those. Uh, Jason, I have one on the email uh, from somebody who lives near a hospital saying they constantly see hospital workers coming to and from work but wearing scrubs and wondering if that's a safe practice to wear scrubs and to wear what you're wearing in the hospital on your commute. 
you can't blame them for doing this. I don't like it. I never have. But when they took laundry services out of the hospitals so that you had to wash your stuff at home, it became common practice. It's not something that we recommend, but by the same respect, unless you happen to be coming into incredibly close contact with those clothes and they happen to get into your mouth, the likelihood of you having any kind of contamination that could lead to an infection is very, very low. All right. Uh, We only have about 30 seconds left. Um, Just getting back to the antibodies, how Mm -hmm. many people will have to take part in this, or do you think, till we can get a really good idea? Well, usually we like to have at least a 1,000 people because that will give us some understanding. But this thing can do 170 per hour. So I'm hoping that we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people who are going to come in into this. And eventually we'll start getting some very, very good population-based data as opposed to just simple study data. 